Will Smith being that movie star that everybody loves, I think this is going to follow him around and this is going to change that perception forever. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Matt Bellany, a founding partner at Puck, leading coverage of Hollywood and entertainment at the outlet. Matt has been indispensable on the Oscars beat this week. Uh, Of course, the big story is not who won Best Picture, unfortunately, but Will Smith getting up on stage and slapping the shit out of Chris Rock. Matt is really well positioned to cover this story because before joining Puck, he spent 14 years at The Hollywood Reporter and ended up serving as its editor-in-chief. He was also at the Oscars on Sunday and witnessed it all go down live. So I called up Matt on Friday to discuss how that went down inside the Dolby Theater. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. You just reported uh, for Puck what sounded like a pretty wild emergency meeting of Academy leadership to discuss Will Smith's slap of Chris Rock. Uh, Could you tell us what happened there? The Academy is run by a 54-member board of governors. There are three governors from each of the 17 branches, uh, plus three at-large members. And they represent everyone from actors to directors to visual effects artists. You know, some big celebrities are on there. Steven Spielberg, Laura Dern, you know, and then there are people you've never heard of. They are in charge of the group that puts on the Oscars. And they were emotional. So they had a meeting on Wednesday in which the CEO of the Academy, Don Hudson, was grilled the group on what actually happened on the show, um, how it happened, why Will Smith was allowed to stay in the audience for 30 minutes and then accept his Best Actor Award when many people think that he should have been removed from the ceremony for, uh, for, you know, slapping Chris Rock and violating the standards of conduct. So... It was a really emotional event, and they really tried to get to the bottom of what happened. What happened, uh, particularly after the slap, the Academy is claiming that Will Smith was asked to leave and refused. But there is reporting that contradicts he was sort of formally asked to leave. Do you have any sense of what actually happened? So here's what I have ascertained in conversations with multiple sources. You know, they're both kind of right. And it's really a battle of semantics here because, Mm. yes, Don Hudson, the CEO and the president of the Academy, David Rubin, they did say backstage, we would like him to leave. And they said it in front of the producer of the show, Will Packer, as well as Will Smith's publicist, Meredith O'Sullivan Wasson. Now, what was decided was that Meredith O'Sullivan Wasson would go and communicate that desire to Will Smith, not the leaders of the Academy. So Will Smith's own publicist then came up to him and said, they would like you to leave. What do you think? And he said, according to my sources, I would like to stay, but I'll think about it. So she then goes backstage, communicates that to the Academy. And at around the same time, Will Packer, the producer of the show, came over and said, you know, Chris Rock doesn't want to press charges. And... He doesn't want Will Smith to leave. He wants him to stay. And that, I understand, was influential with the group. They decided to let him stay after that. I mean, it was the thing that I was thinking of, and I'm sure everyone was thinking of when it happened. It's like, what would have happened if they had removed from the Oscars and then he went on to win? Like, were there, there, did they ever think about contingency plans if he were 
removed from the room and then uh, he ended up still winning the Oscar. I, I don't know about that. That would have been the producer's job. My guess right. is they probably would have asked Jada to right. accept, accept, which it. would have yeah. also been a great moment of television. Um, they could yeah. have asked the Williams sisters to accept. They could have asked someone, you know, Will Smith to names. They could have done nothing. They could have had the presenter just, ex- you know, accept on his behalf. I, I don't know that it got that far, but there's been a lot of second guessing over the decision. I was in the audience. We were all confused. We yeah, what, what it was, was it like to deal. be in, in the audience that I mean, that during night. the moment, it was a stunned silence. You know, right. we didn't know we didn't know what was going on. We thought it was a bit, and then we realized it wasn't, and everyone was quiet. But then afterward, there was nobody that came out and told us what to think or what happened. The show just kind of chugged along, and people made kind of odd references to it. But we didn't really know what to think in the audience. Right. You know, then in the commercial breaks, you saw Bradley Cooper, Nicole Kidman, Denzel, all giving him hugs. So yeah. it, it wasn't like the, this guy was ostracized. He was sort of being comforted. Do you get the sense that Will Smith's career is going to recover because people in Hollywood are going to just forgive him for doing something like this? I mean, he seemed sort of defiant when it first happened. He went to the Vanity Fair after party, only apologized to Chris Rock in you know a PR vetted statement the day after the show. Does it seem like this is something that's just going to blow over for Will Smith? Or do you think it's going to hurt his career more so than we assumed maybe on the night. I think the sentiment has changed within the industry. There is a lot of outrage. And we saw it at the Board of Governors meeting. And we're seeing it in conversations around town. And I'm seeing it in people that are reaching out to me within the industry to say, you know, who the hell is this guy? You know, and I, I think I reflected a little bit of that in my piece that I wrote for Puck about the enablers and how there was, you know, group of enablement, group of enablers around him um, and an entire industry that enables this kind of behavior. There will be career repercussions for him, ju- not just because the Academy is going to punish him and probably ban him from the Oscars for a year or more. But I think that, you know, the days of Will Smith being that movie star that everybody loves, I think this is going to follow him around and this is going to change that perception forever. Right. And you mentioned that he might get get suspended for, for, for a year or two. Is that the most likely course for the Academy to discipline him? I mean, I, I can't imagine they're going to revoke his Oscar or something like that. I don't think they'll take his Oscar. I mean, the Oscar is a physical thing. You know, Harvey right. Weinstein still has his Oscar. Roman Polanski still has his Oscar. They would be but, the, the top con- yeah, contenders and, for getting their know, Oscar revoked. But those people were expelled from the Academy. So right. the, the death sentence here is that he gets expelled. Expelled, right. Uh, and there is a large, I don't know how large, but there is a vocal contingency of the Academy that would like to see him expelled. Mm-hmm. I don't think they'll go there. I think the, if I had to guess, I think he'll be suspended for a year. Some people want five years you know, to send a message. Some people want six months. They think that's enough. I don't know that's what this, uh, this two week period is about where he has a chance to argue his case and then they will ultimately decide via a vote of the board of governors what to do were you on twitter the next day on monday i, I mean, was because i thought it was, it was quite one quite a place better better days in of, of twitter <laughs> history like did you I better mean, like, slash like insufferable horrific. when some, right. some people should not have access to their twitter 
Oh, I mean, yeah, like the the tweets like linking it to 9-11 and asking what would happen if Will Smith had punched Betty White, et cetera, were, were pretty sensational, I have to say. Yeah, there were a lot of great takes. There were some that were pretty bad. Right. Um, now, this was the first year that a streaming platform won Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, Apple won with uh, with Coda. That was a pretty incredible coup for Apple, which only has been in the game for a couple years. What do you think that means for the industry and for Apple streaming competitors that they won after just a couple of years making movies? It's a really big deal. I mean, the, the surprise in Hollywood is not that a streaming service won Best Picture. The money that they are pouring into not just making these kinds of movies, but marketing them to awards voters with campaigns that cost tens of millions of dollars specifically to win awards. They're outspending mm -hmm. the traditional studios significantly. And the reason is because when you are launching a streaming service or trying to gain subscribers, having Oscar winning film on your tile is meaningful. I mean, right. we're already seeing the numbers for Coda on Apple TV plus significantly spike. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, so that's not a surprise. It is surprising that Apple beat Netflix, Amazon and the others to best picture because they've only been in this business a little more than two years. And, you know, Netflix has been making original content for a decade. So right. has Amazon. And they've been trying to win Best Picture for at least five years and have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to do it and have never gotten quite over that barrier. Apple comes in with the right kind of movie and the right moment in the zeitgeist and the right campaign. And, you know, there's an element of luck to this. They, they, right. they had a very smart campaign and it's a very good movie but they did have an element of luck. And so, and you sort of analyze this in a, in a great piece or uh, before the Oscars, actually, when you sort of pre almost predicted that Coda would win. And it seems like it's not just about dumping as much money as possible into both the movie and to the post um, release uh, promotion of it. Um, you really have to have like a perfect chemistry in figuring out how, like having the right movie at the right time. Like it's a narrative. These movies right. have to create a narrative around them. And that's why they, it's like any political campaign, really. If you have a candidate, that candidate needs a narrative. It needs mm. hope, or it needs make America great again, or it needs something that signals to the voters, I can put my vote behind this. And right. this year, with all of the problems in the world and the war in Ukraine and everything, the movie Coda makes you feel good and gives you an emotional response. And that was the campaign. That was why it won. Right. And often Academy movies with an emotional element will end up beating or intelligent film. And we had that breakdown this year, The Power of the Dog. A lot of people love that film. It's a very cerebral Western, but ultimately it doesn't make you feel good at the end. In fact, it's sort of a negative kind of oof ending right but the coda ending i mean my, i watched it with my wife she was crying and like yeah. that's what people want to put their vote behind right and then as you noted in the piece you have a movie like belfast which is sort of feel good and like a good oscar contender but it came at the same time as the invasion into ukraine which right. means that it's just not what people kind of want to see right now no and there's a, there is an element of kind of of your own virtues in this vote. And I think the fact that Coda was such a uh, breakthrough film for deaf people 
and the deaf community and children of deaf adults, that that also caused voters to say, I want to endorse the message of this film as well as the film itself. You spent, uh, I think it's 14 years at The Hollywood Reporter, uh, including four years as its as its editor, uh, before decamping to Puck, which is a new kind of digital uh, news site. For listeners who don't know, could you explain to us like what Puck is, what the idea for it is? Sure. Uh, we have a coverage area that is, we call the, the nexus of power centers, meaning we have the, we're trying to appeal to an elevated reader in Hollywood, in Silicon Valley, in Washington, D.C., and in the finance world of New York. And we have identified those as the kind of power culture centers of America. And we're assembling a group of writers that have audiences within those power centers. And we're putting them all together under one roof under the presumption that if you are a leader or if you are a super fan of any of these industries, you kind of have to know what's going on in the others. So with one subscription, you get the inside access and the elevated conversation in all of those worlds. And that's that's kind of the impetus behind the brand. Um, From a, a media model perspective, we are journalist owned. We are incentivizing our writers uh, in a very different way than some of the traditional outlets in the sense that we're building a brand that the journalists have equity in and where they can use it as a platform to build their own personal brands as well. I was reading a a profile of uh, Jay Penske, um, who owns The the Hollywood Reporter, uh, and it quite, I think, accurately assessed that Puck is able to challenge Hollywood trades and glossies, uh, particularly on in, in your beat, because it isn't beholden to anyone in Hollywood. It doesn't need to get Zoe Kravitz on the cover next month. Is that like a freedom that you notice working at Puck? And is that something you enjoy? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I you know, having spent so much time at The Hollywood Reporter, I know what those outlets do very well. And I know where the, the holes the are and the are. sweet spots right. to, yeah, to try to, to fill. Um, and, you know, the Hollywood Reporter does a lot of amazing things and the other outlets that Jay owns amazing things. But one of my primary jobs as the editor of the Hollywood Reporter was to book 40 covers a year, most of which you know, high profile people on them. So you have to really be sensitive to the whims of those people. So um, a lot of and people the handlers you can't piss are, off. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you take your shots. I'm not right. saying THR doesn't do tough stories, but you got to right, take your do. shots and there are limitations. And part of my job was maintaining those relationships while also putting out a product that uh, readers would want to read. I recognize the value of relationships in any form of journalism. And I still, no one is ever surprised by something that I write in my puck content in my newsletter. <laughs> I always work with people and I make right. sure their voices are heard. But at the end of the day, I don't necessarily have to care what ex-publicist thinks or what Y executive thinks about what I write because I'm not going after that kind of access journalism that requires concessions to be made. And we are primarily a a subscription outlet. We do sell advertising, but we are primarily a subscription media outlet. So when when you're a subscription outlet, your main goal is to appeal to the reader and gain subscribers and keep them happy. You right, know, that's the only when you are primarily to. right. Yeah, when you're exclusively an ad and sponsorship driven outlets, which the trades are, you are 
100% beholden to those people who are supporting your business. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, it doesn't mean that you do everything they say. And there is a church and state line that I think, at least when I was there, we honored. Um, but, you know, when you're a different model, you can have, you have different freedoms. Right. And I think that's reflected in, you know, one of the reasons why I, I enjoy Puck so much is that particularly your reporting and Dylan Byers, who covers the uh, the media industry, it really does feel like they're like each piece is packed with a lot more scoops than you would read in other reports from other newsrooms, which have much bigger staffs. Um, and I think that does have to do with like the style of publication that it is. I think so, too. And, you know, there is a a back and forth and an understanding that goes on in the Hollywood trade world that prevents some of the best stories from coming out because mm-hmm. it's not, a, it's not a, an advertising thing. It's just a source relationship thing. If you're counting on, you know, these talent agencies to feed you a steady diet of new projects that they have with actors, you know, you kind of got to pay attention to making them happy Whereas I don't really do that. And I've never, I'm not trying to compete with the scoops and the little project incremental news that dominates so much of the trade coverage. Right. I don't really have to keep Agent X happy. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to be an asshole or to, you know, uh, to, to burn any bridges, but I can do the kind of behind the scenes coverage that might make agents upset because I don't have to care about that. Mm. Now, how did you get into this, this, uh, I mean, journalism in general, but, but your beat uh, more specifically as well? Well, I was an entertainment lawyer before that. I actually went to law school in Los Angeles and worked at an entertainment litigation firm for five years before I became a journalist. And I had always planned to get back into media, but I didn't know what that would mean or whether I'd have to move to New York. But I went to Hollywood Reporter and just started rising up the ranks there. And it allowed me to do more interesting things, more ambitious journalism. And I became, um, you know, it allows you to really own a beat to know, to know a lot about a particular industry that there's, you know, a lot of interest in days of the generalist, I think, wane, where you just kind of jump from beat to beat and dive in right. the, the journalists that have the most impact these days, I think, are the people who are experts in a particular area and can compete against anyone at any outlet on the internet. Um, So I really focused on learning everything I could about the entertainment industry and being a lawyer in the industry really did help me because I was able to dive into cases that were about television distribution or profit participation on the Lord of the Rings movies. You get to see the entire business and that's really helped me in my career. And now that we're a few years uh, out from it, why did you leave the Hollywood Reporter in the end? You know, I ended up having a disagreement about some of the, you know, some of the direction. Um, I have nothing but nice things to say about them. They were actually great to me. There were some directional things. It had been, it was reported on, uh, right? Excessively, you can find, you can find that. But I didn't. Um, I never said anything negative publicly about anyone because, honestly, like people have disagreements direction that is 100 the rights of people who manage media outlets and mm-hmm. i also have the right to leave and do something new uh, invited to the hollywood reporter uh party uh, oh i have tons of friends <laughs> I, I have tons of friends there i hope they continue that party it was one of i know my favorite was, things to do i think it was my favorite one in media 
Yeah, it was a really old school, you know, kind of media party that doesn't really exist in, uh, I, right. you know, I always like doing it. I hope they revive that post-COVID. Yeah, I think the last time I was there, um, Michael Avenatti was there, which is a real, which really dates, I think, the the, the party. I forget if that was the last party. One. He was there. I think there was Mooch. Um, right, and, yep. Uh, you know, it, that might have been the, also the party that um, I think Roger Ailes was there, or maybe he had died. I, I forget, but Roger Ailes used to come to that party. Uh, all the all the hit makers, Charlie Rose, Harvey yeah. Weinstein. That we used to joke that whenever someone went down in scandal, there was always yeah. a picture of them from that party that everybody would use. Really, everyone used that was the, that was the, the party to, to source from. It was like um, the perp the perp party, the perp party, yeah, of uh, of Hollywood and media. So um, a lot of industries that we hold dear. Uh, like the magazine industry and and Hollywood, I think have have and correct me if you disagree with this, um, have, have lost a lot of their power over the last decade thanks to all sorts of sort of you know cultural fragmentation. Um, are you optimistic about the future of Hollywood in particular? Do you think the the industry is getting better or worse? You know, it's funny you say that because I don't. You have to kind of separate the premium content entertainment industry from the quote unquote Hollywood, because I think Hollywood as a concept is a dying thing. You know, you say that, that the, the tech companies are where the power centers are these days. That's true. However, if there's one thing that the tech companies have discovered, it's that premium content is really additive to their business from a money-making standpoint or from a branding standpoint. I mean, you look at the company like Apple, Apple doesn't have to get into the entertainment business. They really don't. And they don't make that much money from it. Um, It is a branding exercise and it is a value add for their customers. They're trying to grow their services industry and they see that as a differentiator in a world of hardware. So what do they do? They, you know, spend a couple billion dollars in Hollywood. Not that much for them. That's a, that's a flex on the part of Hollywood, so to speak, because that's something that the world's largest company doesn't have and has decided that it needs. So in that way, the influence of Hollywood has never been bigger. Now, these companies in entertainment used to be the big companies that everybody cared about. You know, the, you look at Fox and you look at Viacom and you look at Warner Brothers and Warner Media. These used to be the power centers. Now they are tiny. I mean, only Disney really is up there with the big boys these days. And, you know, they're right up with Netflix. Netflix is a company that, you know, didn't exist 20 years ago or barely existed. And now is the dominant player in the, in the fastest growing area of entertainment. So, you know, it's a rapidly changing industry and it's evolving. And that's what makes it so interesting to me and what makes you know people ask what what do you how do you get your ideas to, to write about there is no shortage of ideas in fact i often lament that that i don't write more often even though i'm not saying i will but because there's so much to cover do you see uh, just to get back to the oscars for my my last question do you see at any point at in which the these streaming platforms are going to gradually push out the traditional studios and eventually when we show up to the oscars it's just going to be netflix and apple competing on a bunch of different movies i don't know about that because i think that the kinds of movies that make it to the oscar stage often are the more smaller independent type movies which are increasingly threatened 
but they will always get made, I think. And it's not just going to be those companies. Now, you know, we may see Apple buy a traditional studio like a Paramount or, you know, Universal or something like that. There, there's, I think, going to be more consolidation in this space. And the streamers will be the acquirers in those cases rather than the acquired. But I think there'll always be a place for the traditional studios, if only because this is ultimately a talent-driven business. And the talent is going to go to what makes the best sense for them. And there are going to be companies that appeal to talent because of the deals that they can give them and the incentives that they can do that, that, that will produce great content that ultimately wins Oscars. Matt Melanie, thanks so much for, for joining me on, uh, on a busy week for you. Yeah, thanks. No, no problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Matt Bellany on Mediate.com. 